It is certainly good to be with you again and to have the opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. I want to say as we begin tonight that the Apostle Paul long ago wrote to the Corinthian brethren and he said to them, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that will be our goal this evening, is to speak of our Lord as the, our Lord as the Christ and as the one who was crucified and paid that ultimate price for our sins and that we are so thankful we love him so much because of what he has done for us in giving that. And I tell you, somebody else who loved him so much for doing that was the Apostle Paul. For the next three nights, we're going to be talking about the life of the Apostle Paul. And we have a lot of studies, and I guarantee you've had many studies, if you're a member of the Lord's Church, about uh, the, the, the teachings of the Apostle Paul and looking through the book of Acts. But what we're going to be looking at with this is looking more at the person of Paul. And the person of Paul and some of the things that, that he, he, he did and what happened to him, and how God used him, and as, as, this, as this is shaped within Scripture, and there's so many lessons for us there that are so practical in helping us to be devout followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul said some extraordinary things. He said some things that are amazing, and he said these things as he wrote to his Christian brethren, and he talked about, he talked about following him. And if you got your Bibles here tonight, turn if you would to 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. You'll notice here as he's writing to the Corinthian brethren. I tell you what, folks, the Corinthian brethren had some problems. I believe if you could have got it wrong, they got it wrong. And yet he loved them. I tell you what, it seemed like he loved them kind of more than he loved everybody else. Because he spent so much time trying to help them. To go to heaven, to be, to be right in the sight of God, to, 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 to have a life that was worthy of the walk in which they had been called. And he, write, he writes to them here, and starting there, he says this in verse 16, Therefore I urge you, verse 16, imitate me. Now I'm drawing this here within the context. I'll leave that up to you to go back and read if you would like to. And verse 17, For this reason I have sent Timothy <clears throat> to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach everywhere in every church. Paul told these Corinthian brethren to imitate him. To look at him and do what he did. He said, I'm sending Timothy. I'm going to send Timothy to you who is his beloved son of the faith. And will send my beloved son, my faithful son. And he's going to remind you of my ways in Christ. He says, these are things that I teach everywhere and in Every church, Paul not only is the teacher, the proclaimer, the preacher, he is the living example of somebody following, imitating Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul followed, imitated, did the things that Jesus did. And then he told folks, hey, go do these things. Follow my example. Turn if you would to Philippians the fourth chapter, Philippians chapter 4. Paul there is, he's writing to these, these, these brethren to rejoice. But he writes to them and he tells them very simply there, in verse 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Brother, I tell you what, there's a certain boldness about what Paul is saying. Imitate me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm going to remind you of my ways in Christ that I teach, preach everywhere in every church. The things that you learned, received, heard, and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with 
you. I think that's astounding. And you know, I think it's extraordinarily comforting that you and I can say, you know what, how do you live a Christian life? How do I live faithfully before God? How do I live in a way that's pleasing and acceptable and it can be proven before the Lord? You know what? All I have to do is look at the life of Paul. Because he did it. He lived that life of devotion and faith and faithfulness before the Lord. And when we look at his life and we do the things, we say the things, we are the kind of person that he was, we know with confidence, absolute confidence, that we can be acceptable before God. That's that's a wonderful blessing to us. As Christians, I guarantee you, we we say this often, that we say things like, there's somebody watching you. And and when I say that, I say that even among our Christian brethren, is that in this congregation, I don't care what age that you are, somebody who is younger than you are is watching you. And they're looking at your example. You may be a teenager here and thinking, nobody in the world is watching me and I don't care what I do or how I act or what I say. But I'm here to tell you, somebody is watching you, and that's those children that are younger than you are. And we as young men, or I'm not so young anymore, used to be a young man. I was looking up to men who were older than I was. I was watching them live their life and how they were going to live their life. You know, it's a blessing to have somebody that you can look up to. And brethren, we can still look up to our older brother Paul and see what kind of man that he was and, and draw inspiration from the life that he lived and what he set before us. You know, we talk about authority a lot in the Lord's body, and we should. We talk about those direct commands or statements of God, and then we talk about apostolic example. Brother, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, you know what? You live by the example of the righteous apostles, and you will be pleasing unto God. So we do so. We do so with much faith. We do so with much devotion. But you know, there's a part of Paul's life a lot of times that we don't really talk about that much. And that's the part of Paul's life before he was a Christian. He was Saul of Tarsus of Cilicia back then. He wasn't Paul. And you know what? He would probably be somebody that you would enjoy coming in the back door of this church building. In recent past, uh, they killed a terrorist named Osama bin Laden. And he was adamantly against the United States. And I guarantee he would call Junior Faith an infidel. And he was determined to destroy as many people as he could. Right now, uh, across the pond there, we know that they're fighting this great fight against an army of people called ISIS. And they cut the heads off of people who believe in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, they do so without any reserve whatsoever. Can you imagine if you or I to meet the head of ISIS today and say, you know what, hey, he's been converted, let's welcome him in. Or if, we're gonna, if Osama bin Laden was still alive, hey, let's, let's welcome Osama right in the back door. Somebody told me he'd, he'd come to the Lord, he'd been baptized for the remission of his sins. How would you feel about that? If somebody who was that adamantly against your faith and would determine to kill you decide to come in that back door. I don't know about you, and I have a tough time. But I promise you there was no greater terror threat to the cause of Jesus Christ than Saul of Tarsus. And these are his own words. We'll continue on here within our studies here. I want to look back here, if you would, here about this man. And you know what? If you look there at that picture, you probably can figure out it's just a painting, it's a depiction. Uh, what's happening there? Uh, they, they laid the coats at the feet of a man as they stoned a great servant of the Lord to death. And that man was Stephen. And the man whom they laid the coats at the feet of was Saul of Tarsus. And to me that gives the acknowledgement there, and he's going to later acknowledge the fact that he, in a sense, was in charge that day of the killing of a great Christian uh, preacher and teacher of Jesus Christ. Paul, Saul, was zealous. He was zealous as a Jew. 
He was zealous as somebody who, who sought to destroy the church of God. You say, can you be zealous? Can you be on fire? Can you, can you be pumped up? Can you go out there and do things for the wrong reasons? As the answer is, yes. Seems like there was nobody who was more zealous than he was. If you turn in your Bibles to Galatians, the first chapter, you'll notice there, Paul describes uh, this zeal. In Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He says, therefore, you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. Saul talked about, Paul talks about that he was somebody who persecuted the church beyond measure. He tried to destroy it. He advanced in Judaism beyond his peers, his contemporaries. He was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers. His conduct as a Jew was impeccable. Philippians, the the third chapter, if you turn over there, please, you're going to notice here what Paul says about that past of his life, his religious life, his spiritual life. He says there in chapter 3, starting in verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. For Christ. You you think about somebody who could keep the law in the way that he did. First off, even from his birth, he's right in the law. He's of the right stock. He's of the stock of Israel there. He's of the right tribe. The two remaining tribes were Benjamin and Judah. And that he's of this smallest of tribes, but there weren't that many left of the Benjamites there. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he, he was blameless. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament law or not. I'm sure that you have. And when you read through that, can you imagine being blameless in all of that? And that's exactly what this fellow says. You know what? He had a family tree he could trace all the way back. He was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the highest education. He had an impeccable education. He had the perfect teacher of that particular time in, in, in Gamaliel. You know what? He All these things he could have looked at and said, man, you know what? I'm it. I have arrived. And you know what? He's so zealous about this. He's determined to keep that faith pure by those things that he believed. But once again, he was wrong. He was contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. He imprisoned. He cast his vote against Christians to be killed. He punished them. He compelled them to blaspheme according to what he said in Acts 26 chapter. He was enraged against them. He said, Sam, this is kind of getting to be a negative sermon. You know what? It is negative to me too. He was enraged against Christians. That's his words. He devoted his life to this. To wiping out Christians. He had a zeal for God. It just wasn't according to knowledge. 
He had a passion for doing what he did. But he was ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, saying all that, how many of you, if you had met Saul of Tarsus, would have thought, hey, there's a candidate for Lakeside Church of Christ. Would you? Me neither. There's good ground. That that Saul guy, he's going to produce 30, 50, and 100 fold. He is just the right kind of fella. He is white, middle class, and about middle income. He's been raised up in the church. He'll be a perfect fit for us here. And by the way, that's Mount Washington too. I'm not making fun of you here tonight. He's the right kind of guy for us. You know, not... He, you know, he's, he's already a pretty good guy to begin with. Oh, and we won't have to do a whole lot of teaching. And he seems pretty receptive. He fit none of those parameters when you look at somebody who is going to become a follower of God. In the sense of following Jesus. None of them. Matter of fact, he was the polar opposite of what we would preconceive as somebody is the perfect evangelistic candidate. Say, Sam, where are you going with that? Well, I'm going to go where he went with it. It's the fact that our judgment is not what counts. It's what the Lord thinks. It's not my judgment. It's what the Lord thinks. It's my job, my job, your job, our job, is not to have preconceived judgment about who will and who won't. This is in the hands of God. We just do what we're supposed to do. And we do exactly like Paul did because he did the same thing. Turn if you would your Bibles to Romans the 10th chapter. Romans chapter 10. I'm here to tell you that he had a zeal eventually that was with knowledge. But I want to show you something here as we get into the rest of this, this lesson here tonight. And before we get there, I'm going to ask you a question. When you first became a Christian, who was the first person you wanted to talk to about Jesus afterwards? You don't have to answer. Just think about it. Probably almost without exception. There'll be some exceptions, but almost without it, you wanted to talk to a family member about that. Because you know what? Who do you love? Family. Who do you love? Blood. Blood kin. Who are you close to? Your family. Who do you have influence with? Your family. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Who do you think Paul wanted to be saved? Now you can answer me. Josh was so loud up here, he probably just deafened it. You know, his family. Guess who Paul wanted to save? My family. Now, do you think about all of Israel being his family? Hang in there with me. I know it's warm. It's been a long day. I'm proud of you for being here. But do you think of all of Israel as being his family? He was blood kin to every Israelite that was alive. Not only was he blood kin, he was faith kin to every Israelite that was alive. Not only was he faith kin, he was covenant kin. Not only was he covenant kin, he was promise kin to every Israelite who was alive. I'm here to tell you something else. Jesus was too. And Jesus wanted to save his family and Paul wanted to save his family. And it was his heart's desire to say that his family might be saved. That makes sense. 
And you know what? It's our heart's desire. And that is an incredible thing. We want our families to be saved. And sometimes they're not. And in the case of our, our great friend and brother in Christ, he, his heart's desire was that for Israel, that they might be saved. His heart desire and prayer was that they might be saved. But you know what? Something was wrong. And you may be facing some of the same challenges in trying to reach your family or your friends or people that you have influence with. And that's what we need to talk about here, about how Paul addressed that here in Romans the 10th chapter. He says there, once again, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes we live in a time, unfortunately, that seems to be increasingly more and more illiterate when it comes to the Bible. But there was a time, and not so long ago, that probably all the people that you knew and loved, if they were not a part of the Lord's body, knew a great deal about the Word of God, and they had their own convictions and their faith. And that was so true of the Israelites. And some of the people that we know and love may be very zealous and very devoted within their faith and to their traditions. A long time ago, I asked a young man, I said, he was a Baptist, and I, in no way trying to offend Baptists here tonight. He was a Baptist, and I asked him his question. I said, why do you call yourself a Baptist? And he thought about it for a minute or two, and he said, well, because my mom and dad are Baptists. Okay? And that's our tradition. I've talked to Catholics. And I've asked him, why are you a Catholic? He said, because I was born and raised in the Catholic Church, the Catholic faith, and my parents and my grandparents are Catholics. And brethren, sometimes even talking to people in the Lord's body, why are you a member of the Church of Christ? Well, because mom and daddy brought me up in the Church of Christ, and grandma and grandpa brought them up, and that's what I've always done. And please don't tell me that that doesn't happen. Because it does. I'll tell you a quick story right here. Traditions are good things. They are. Traditions are good things. Traditions that dictate your spiritual life are not. And sometimes we don't even know why we believe what we believe. You know, there's a story about this lady. One day she's cooking Christmas supper. Christmas supper. And she's getting out of hand. She's cooking a ham for Christmas. And she got that ham out and she got out a big old butcher knife and she whacked off the end of that ham and she put it down in that that uh, that that baster or whatever, and she, her, her daughter's watching. She sticks that bad boy right in the oven and gets ready to cook that Christmas ham. And, you know, daughter's looking on, see what mom's does. And later on, my daughter gets her house, and she gets ready to cook her Christmas supper. And she gets her ham out, gets a big butcher knife, and cuts it in off that ham and puts it in the pot and puts it in the oven. And later on that day, she got to thinking. She got to thinking, why did I cut the end off of that ham? So she calls her mama and says, Mama, Mama, why do we cut the end off the ham? Well, I'm not really sure about that, but I tell you what, when I was growing up, my mama cut the end off the ham, so that's what I always did. So she calls up her mama, called up grandma. Grandma, why do we cut the end off the ham before we put it in the oven? She said, well, I want to tell you that a long time ago that I didn't have a big enough pot, so I cut the end off that ham to stick it down in that pot. Sometimes we do what we do without knowing why we do it. 
The Israelites were doing what they were doing with great zeal. And Saul had done what he had done with great zeal. But brethren, it was a zeal without knowledge. Paul said that Christ is the end of the law. You notice here back in our passage, let me read that, that little second to you just one more time if you would allow me please. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for everyone, excuse me, the end of the law for, to, uh, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Brethren, the law of Moses was perfect in the sense of what he could do. There's nothing wrong. It is holy. It is of God. But there were limitations to what that law could do. Jesus Christ came to fulfill all of the law. Every, he came to do what the law could not do. The law and the blood of bulls and goats could never, according to the Hebrew writer, take away sins in Hebrews 10th chapter. It couldn't do those things. So if you're going to stay under the law of Moses and do those things, and, and, and you know what? You're going to kind of have your own righteous system there. And you're going to think, I'm pretty good because I raised up my pet lamb, I raised up my pet ram, I raised up my pet bull, and once a year we're going to go down to Jerusalem and we're going to offer those perfect sacrifices to God and that's going to take away my sins. I'm going to go through all the motions there and I'm going to go home and we're going to repeat the process next year. And we did this for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And not understanding that that was never what God wanted. Even when the prophets wrote that he didn't want those things. And being bound by that. Even in the law because, you know what, I gave my best. By the way, if you offered a sacrifice to God under the Old Testament system, where did you get the sacrifice? Where did you get the lamb, the ram, and the bull? Where did it come from? God. By the way, I don't think you can make a lamb or a ram, or a bull. God had to give it to you. So in essence, all they did was give what was given to them back to the Lord and let God pay for one more year. God had a better plan, a better covenant with better promises. The law was going to be fulfilled and that law was not going to be bound up in what a man could do and make it some type of simple law. It's going to be what God could do. Reading on here in chapter 10, if you would, please. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Secondly, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? You notice here, it says, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. The righteousness of faith speaks, and it says something. What it doesn't say is, hey, let's go up to heaven and bring the Christ down. It doesn't say, let's go down into death and bring the Christ up. If you turn back to Matthew, the 16th chapter, and when Jesus asked the, his disciples, who do men say that I am? You know who they said that he was? That he was Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist. By the way, Elijah, Jeremiah, and John the Baptist had lived when? In the ancient past. Elijah had been taken up into heaven by the whirlwind. Jeremiah was dead. John had had his head cut off. They were saying, we'll descend into the abyss and bring the Christ up. Or the Christ hasn't come yet. And so we'll bring him down from heaven. And all along, they had had the Christ right there with them. 
The other day, I, there's a dear friend of mine in Mount Washington, and she had her first Bible study with someone who was not a Christian. And she'd been working on this for weeks. And every time this lady had some excuse not to have that Bible study with my dear friend there, my, my sister in Christ. And finally, she had that study. And this lady had come from a rough background, and so she's having to take things in a different way that you and I might think about things. She's working with her, and she's come from a drug and alcohol abuse background. Her husband's still involved in all those things. And she, she was, has lots and lots of questions and lots of doubts about the Lord's body and the practice within the Lord's body. And <clears throat> she says, well, I, I just, you know, I just think I need a sign from the Lord to let me know if I need to change in my life. And my friend said, hello. <laughs> That's what she said. I'm here and I'm telling you what God wants you to do. Christ was right there. He had told them what to do. His Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them and filled them and guided them into all truth. And yet the Jewish brethren resisted that so much. Brethren, a lot of times folks just resist the truth. They're going to fight it for lots of different... And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. Now, we're at, right tomorrow night we're going to talk about why wasn't Paul converted? Well, you know that he was, but why wasn't Paul converted? And out of the three lessons, this is probably my favorite, but it's not, it may not be the best. But nonetheless, here, we fight that. The people we're going to talk to are going to fight that. Sometimes we just give up too quick. Be patient. How patient, how patient was God with Saul of Tarsus? How patient was he with this persecutor of his people? Please remember that when you're talking to a lost and dying world. He said, the righteous faith speaks, and what it says is what we find in the next verses. Let's read that, please. He says, the word is near. Near to you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And brethren, I know people misuse these verses. People misuse all kinds of verses. Don't let that take the power out of these passages. That when a heart believes and a mouth speaks these words, salvation is close behind. His people needed to believe. They were fighting belief. And they were fighting saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I guarantee for those words to come out of Saul of Tarsus' mouth, he probably thought they would never come out that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer. But they did. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That same verse is quoted to us in Acts, the second chapter, as the apostles began that great and mighty sermon on the day of Pentecost, in which 3,000 souls gladly received the word and were baptized. They called upon the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. In verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And you know what? Preachers had been sent then and preachers are sent now. We thank God for that very fact. The zeal here 
that they had was without knowledge. But the knowledge was there. You know, the Apostle Paul labored more abundantly. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, more than all the other apostles. The fruit that he produced, the zeal he had with knowledge, because he's got the faith now, brethren, and he's like a juggernaut. Nothing is going to stop him from telling someone about Jesus the Christ from day one. God had revealed his son in Paul. I preach a lesson called, uh, there's two lessons I preach called Why I Believe the Bible. In my second lesson, I make this point within, and I make this very quickly here tonight, is that God used the most hostile witness possible to testify to the validity of his son. He used somebody who had every reason not to testify to become the person who would convince everybody else that he was the son of God. Brethren, that's genius. That's what that is. When you look and say, okay, the, the most ardent opponent, the most vicious enemy, the person who stood against and persecuted the most will be the, the, the chief spokesperson for now the faith. It's hard for people to resist that. But they did. But it is so hard to resist. That's what makes our book, what makes the Bible, what makes this the Word of God, what makes it so so powerful. And you know what? We've looked at it so much, and I've looked at it so much, sometimes we miss this. Like I, I asked this question one time. I said, you know, when you're with the little children, uh, you ask them a question, and a lot of times they, don't, they may not know the answer. And somebody said, well, just say Jesus, because that's the answer nine times out of ten. And sometimes that's our answer as adults. We just say Jesus. And we should say that great and awesome name. But do you know what Jesus means? It's the word Yeshua. Or Yeshua, depending on how you pronounce it. And it means God is salvation. That's what it means. When we say Christ, I'm saying Jesus, Christ, or the Christ. What are we saying? That Christ means anointed one. The same word for Messiah or Redeemer. So what we're really saying when we're saying Jesus, God is salvation, our Messiah, our Redeemer, the anointed one of God. That's what we're saying. And you know what, when those words came out of his mouth, that's what he said. And people believed and obeyed and became followers of Christ. Turn if you would to 1 Timothy chapter 1, please. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll start there in verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. 
Paul knew how God had saved him. And he says, I'm a pattern. I'm a pattern of the long-suffering of God. I'm a pattern of how Jesus Christ can save anybody. Anybody. Jesus so many times went to people that others thought were unfit for his company. But he knew the power of himself and his words. And it didn't matter where you were from or what you had done, what sin you had committed. He knew that salvation was available to them. Sometimes we may think, well, they've got too much past. I've had people tell me this. I've said, they've said, well, I've just done too much bad in my life. There's no way God can forgive me for all that. I said, no, that's not right. If he can forgive the Apostle Paul, he can forgive anybody. If he can forgive the, per- the people that killed his son on the day of Pentecost, they can, he can forgive anybody for anything. Well, I, I, my life is a mess. I, I've been married two or three times, and I've got all these kids, and I didn't teach them right. Then I remind them once again, there's power in the gospel. You say, you know, people who've been married two or three or four times can become Christians? Let me repeat that. People who've been married two or three or four times can become Christians? Yes. Woman at the well had been married four times, and the man she had five husbands. The man she, married, was, she was with at the time was not her husband. It didn't stop Jesus from trying to give her the living water. We live in messy times. Don't stop people, don't let people's past stop you from telling them the story of the Son of God. You say, well, that's not going to work out. I said, yes, it does. There are two men in Mount Washington right now, and I wouldn't dare say their names. And one of them has been married three times, and the other has been married two times. And they didn't have a right to be married. They didn't have the right to be married now. And both those men are single men right now. And they're not single men because Sam Fowler's a preacher. Okay? They're single men because they believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they count their faith and their hope in him to be far greater than any relationship they can have with another human being while here on earth. The gospel can save anybody. Go ahead and take out your psalm books. Let's turn to our psalm and curtain and get ready to close our lesson. Thank you so much for your kind attention tonight. Appreciate everybody being here. We've got a huge crowd this evening, and I know that, once again, that we finally had some sunshine out today. You probably had things you might have been doing this afternoon out in the sunshine. You chose to be here. You've chosen the better part. I appreciate you for being here. More importantly, the Lord appreciates you for being here. As we bring glory and honor unto him. We face challenges. It's a great challenge to me to imitate my godly brother within the New Testament. Paul was an outstanding human being. He was an outstanding Christian. We have a challenge within that, but you know what? It's a challenge you and I can meet. We can rise to that occasion. We can, we can press as he pressed toward the upper call of God in Christ Jesus.
We can live like he lived and talk like he talked and do what he did. We can do that. And we will bring glory to God and we will be accepted by God as we live that life. But there are things we need to do. We need to have that same heart's desire for those people who are lost. Keep it. Don't lose it. It's an easy thing to lose. You have to try to look at every person that you see is that is a precious soul that's worth all of the universe and that Jesus Christ died for them. Maybe I could say something to them. May it be our prayer. Be our prayer. We're praying that souls might be saved. I would encourage you in your personal prayer life, in your congregational prayer life, pray for the lost. Pray for open doors to teach the lost. Pray for men who are going to other countries and in this country to teach the lost and women who are accompanying them or doing the work that they are needful to do to teach those who are lost and to strengthen them that they might hear and they might know the truth. You're going to have to use your knowledge. You know what? You're going to walk out here tonight and probably if you meet someone at a restaurant this evening or or if you meet somebody at school tomorrow or somebody at your place of work, you will know more than a hundred times more of the Bible than they will. You have knowledge. you got to use it. Paul had to deal with people who were zealous without knowledge. And so do we. And we know that he did. And we, they, he know he effectively preached the truth to them. And some resisted and some believed. And we take hope in that. What our challenge is, is this final point here tonight. Is this, we sometimes have knowledge without zeal. We know a lot. But I'll ask you, what do you do with it? What do I do with it? When's the last time you talked to somebody about the gospel? I'm not saying inviting them to church. Inviting here to worship is a great thing. Don't get me wrong. Invite all that you can. But when is the last time you talk to somebody about the gospel? Brother, if we don't talk, if we don't teach, if we don't preach, no one will be saved. And there's going to come a time we're going to stand before God and we're going to be held accountable for what we did in this life. May we stand before him and say, I did everything I could do. And forgive me for for those things I didn't do. But may we be able to say, I I looked out in this world and I said things to people who needed to hear it so they might be saved. Now, I told you that uh, I'm a grandfather. And I'll get to, to to my core here in just a second. But... About three years ago, we had VBS, and I tried to convince the elders at the time to let me bring a lamb into the church building. And they didn't quite nix me of bringing the animal, the live animal, into the church building. But the way one of the elders looked at me, I knew that probably wasn't a good idea, so I didn't actually bring a live animal into the church building. But what if I did? What if I brought a little lamb in? What would you like to do with the lamb? Anybody here like to do with the lamb? I want to pet it. I'm going to pet it, hold it, because it's beautiful and cuddly and... You know, you like you like little lambs, and you know that's, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Now, I don't want to freak anybody out, but what if I picked the lamb up, pulled out my knife, slit its throat, held it up by the legs, and let all the blood drain out? How would you feel about that? 
That would be the one sermon you would never forget. That's the one here to tell you tonight. I promise you. Some people will be traumatized by that. Some of you people might even call the police on me and say, we got some crazy preacher down here killing animals in a church building. I'm not here to do that here tonight. But I'm not, once again, I don't want to upset you here tonight, but I've got a granddaughter, one-year-old granddaughter. And can you imagine if I said, you know what, we got a choice to make. we either got to kill the lamb or we got to kill my granddaughter. Now, that's a horrible thing to think about, isn't it? It is for me because the LaCour and I are really close. And it wouldn't matter if we wouldn't. But think about your child. We're going to kill the lamb. We're going to kill your granddaughter. That's not a choice, is it? Is that a choice? Not a choice to me. We're going to kill the lamb. We're not even going to bat an eye. Some people who love animals might say, well, I, you know what? I would rather die in the place of the animal. I think there's something a little bit wrong about that, just to be honest with you. All right? But you know what? We would kill that lamb. But what about this? Just to make it a little sweet in the pot here, what if I said, we're going to kill everybody or kill the lamb? Now what do we do? You kill the lamb. You kill the lamb. Nobody's going to say then, hey, we need to save the lamb's life. Everybody's going to say, we kill the lamb. And that's exactly what God was faced with. That God would either kill everybody or kill the lamb. That was it. John said in John the first chapter, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Apostle says in John the fifth, the Revelation the fifth chapter, that worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You receive blessing and honor. Because the Lamb died, so you and I could live. Why not this week, let's tell somebody about the Lamb. And the Lamb that died so that we could live. Tonight. If you're needful of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're not a child of God tonight, if you've not been buried with Him in baptism to wash away your sins in His blood, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and call upon the name of the Lord. Wash away your sins tonight. Do not delay because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. If you're a child of God tonight, you've partaken of the blood of the Lamb, but you're not living right. You're not living in a way that's acceptable to Him. Why not fix that tonight. If you're needful of the prayers of this congregation, they stand ready to pray for you and with you. Once you respond while we stand and while we sing.